Happy versus Flourishing, episode four. Welcome to the podcast where we give you ideas on how to have a better life, how to get more fun out of life, how to get more, have a more meaningful life. My guest today, Massimo Pierglucci, he's a professor in a university in New York, and he's written a few books on this very subject, so he's very much an expert in this, so definitely someone to take some tips from on, to, on how to have a better life. If you uh, have just joined this podcast for the first time, why not subscribe so you can get regular updates as to when new episodes come out, which is every Tuesday lunchtime. Please do leave a review for us. That really helps the algorithms to get the podcast shown to more people who may be interested in, in listening to it. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Happy versus flourishing, my guest today, Massimo Piglucci. How are you, Massimo? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, and thank you for coming on. And you're over in New York. Yes, uh, right in downtown Brooklyn, right at the beginning of the Brooklyn Bridge. You're not a native New Yorker, are you? No, I'm definitely, I'm definitely not. Um, I was born in Monrovia, in Liberia, in West Africa because my father uh, was working there uh, in uh, supervising road construction for, for a British company. But I grew up in Rome, in Italy. And then I moved to the United States when I was 26. So in fact, uh, just a few days ago, I celebrated 30 years of living in the United States. Wow. And what, what was it made you go to New York? Um, that was a, that's an interesting question. It was the first time in my life, actually, where I made a decision based on quality of life rather than my profession. You know, uh, I've been an academic all my life, initially an evolutionary biologist and then a philosopher. And um, in an academic career, you really usually can't choose that much. You, you can't be that picky about where you're going to live. Whatever, there's jobs that are uh, good, you, you have to go. And, um, mm. and that's what happened to me. And then uh, I was, uh, at some point, I was uh, working at uh, Stony Brook University, which is on Long Island. It's about 40 miles away from New York. And at that point, the, the city really started calling me. Uh, the, in terms of quality of life, I, I really decided that I should move to New York. And for the first time, I moved in a place before I actually found a job there. So I was commuting there uh, from Stony Brook, which is like two hours by train each way for a couple of years and then I finally decided you know I need to just get a job in New York and lucky for me uh, City University of New York was looking for a philosopher of science and they hired me. And, and on that I mean you touched upon some of the things that you do you know being into philosophy and so on what so for the guests uh, so for listeners rather who maybe aren't so familiar with you do you want to explain what it is that you do? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what my mother used to ask me all the time, and <laughs> and I had a little bit of a hard time explaining it. Uh, well, basically, what a philosopher of science specifically does is uh, we we look at science from the outside, mm. trying to figure out how it works. Um, and uh, think about it this way: there are actually three disciplines that look at science from the outside: sociology of science, philosophy of science, and history of science. So, history of science, of course looks at how science progresses over time, right? What happens, you know, how do uh, 
new scientific discovery come about in terms of you know, historical historical trend in social settings. Mm. And uh, sociology of science looks at the at science as a human activity, which of course is characterized just like any other human activity by social structures, you know, power structures, and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, and then philosophy of science looks at the logic of science. Uh, we are interested in, in figuring out how scientists go, scientists go about their, their work from a logical, analytical perspective. What is the connection between scientific theories and scientific uh, you know, and experiments and observations, for instance? Uh, mm. What is the internal structure of scientific theories? How, did, how do they evolve over time in, a, in, a, in an analytic, logical fashion? That sort of stuff. It's a lot of fun if you're into that kind of, kind of thing. <laughs> And so you've been in sort of well, academia for what, over thirty years now. Yeah, actually, I uh, I guess it depends on when you're going to start counting. But if you count from my from the the beginning of my doctorate, uh, that's uh, since 1987. So yeah, that's a long time. Wow! And you guys, you got what three PhDs, haven't you? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> I, I, yeah. What PhD do you have? Yeah, so, so the first one was in, in genetics, and that's from Italy, from the University of Ferrara in northern Italy, uh, near Venice. And that was kind of the, the normal step to do, you know, I did, uh, to take. I, I, was, uh, I finished my undergraduate and master's degree at the University uh, of Rome, La Sapienza, and, and then I enrolled in this doctoral program at the University of Ferrara. Then after that, uh, I was looking for a postdoc in the United States, and uh, because I wanted to get some international experience. And uh, the guy that I was really interested in working with, uh, who was at the University of Connecticut, Carl Schlichting, and we're still friends after all these years. But Carl at the time was a very freshly appointed assistant professor, so he did not have money, uh, you know, grant money to pay for a postdoc. And, and he proposed that I would uh, come as a PhD student. And I said, well, why would I want to come as a PhD student? I already have a PhD. Mm-hmm. And, and Carl said, well... You know, we're going to cut you a special deal. You will pay you more. You'll teach less, and you'll do pretty much whatever you want. I said, all right, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, that's what brought up the second PhD, which, we, which is in evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. Many years later, I was at the University of Tennessee, and uh, I had already gone through the you know, standard steps of an academic career, assistant professor, uh, tenure, associate professor, and then full professor. And at that point, I was looking for something different to do, um, you know, sort of expand my interest in different directions. And I always had an interest in philosophy uh, since I studied philosophy back in high school in Rome. And uh, the University of Tennessee hired a brilliant uh, young philosopher of science, Jonathan Kaplan. We started collaborating. We became friends. And at some some point, I, the father struck me. that's like, hey, this is an interesting thing. So, so I pro- proposed to Jonathan. I said, well, what about um, if I go back to school and run the PhD program in philosophy and you be my mentor? Hmm. And remember, so I was a full professor with tenure. He was an assistant professor without tenure. Uh, so he was hmm. much younger than I was. So it was a little strange proposal hmm. that, I met, that I made. And uh, in fact, sure enough, Jonathan uh, in, Jonathan's immediate reaction was, uh, how many glasses of wine did you have today? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, none, because I don't drink at lunch. And so, <laughs> so, so we started discussing the thing, and uh, it, it happened. So I, I went back for three years. I was both running the laboratory at the University of Tennessee in the biology department, and at the same time in the evening, I would cross campus and take uh, evening courses in philosophy, and during the weekends, I would work on my dissertation. In other words, for three years, I basically had no life outside of wow. campus. 
But it worked out because then, um, then what happened was initially I didn't actually mean to change careers, to shift careers. I just wanted to expand uh, uh, my, my interests. And, um, but then, as I said, I moved to Stony Brook as a biologist. And when I decided to live in New York, the first job that was available was in philosophy. Um, and so I figured, oh, okay, I, I guess I can apply to this one. And that's how the switch actually happened. And so are you a, a full-time professor in philosophy? philosophy? Yeah, I'm actually one of those lucky bastards uh, who have uh, what is called an endowed chair uh, at City College of New York. An endowed chair is essentially somebody, one of our former students, made a lot of money on Wall Street and, and uh, uh, donated a few million dollars to City, uh, City College in order to endow the chair that I have. And what that means is that um, not only I'm paid a uh, summer salary, which is unusual for faculty, actually. Most, most university professors are only paid nine months a year. Uh, not during the summer, uh, but more importantly, it's it, the endowment comes with a uh, research stipend, which allows me to travel for conferences, organize conferences. You know, this of course was before COVID, and people could still travel. Mm-hmm. But um, so there's a lot of discretionary use of funds that I can that I have at my disposal, and I have a reduced teaching load, which means that I can actually enjoy my teaching because I have. Uh, I only teach one course or two courses per semester, depending, and uh, that means that I can actually devote a good, good amount of time to prepare, uh, you know, accordingly, and then to do a, a good job with my students. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very I'm very lucky and I'm very happy in the position that I have. And so, apart from the sort of teaching of philosophy, do do you do sort of like research or anything? Well, my research, uh, you know, research in the humanities is uh, it's a funny. Uh, term to use is we usually refer to as a scholarship more than research but yes basically uh, except that my research is all about uh, how science works as I say in philosophy of science therefore I don't need a lab I just need an internet connection and a library um, and mm-hmm. that's that's about it which means that uh, now that we're stuck in you know uh, essentially semi-quarantine uh, I'm working all day from my uh, home office and it, it works okay um, I can teach online as well um, and, you know, CUNY has um, allowed, pr- provided both faculty and students with, uh, you know, decent tools for, for doing online teaching. So mm. things are actually remarkably uh, good considering the general situation. Mm. And so at the, the university that, you, um, that you're at, so the, do, you, do you just do like sort of general philosophy or do you specialize in any particular area of philosophy? Now, I specialize in a particular... Well, philosophy of science itself is a specialization, but even within philosophy of science, uh, I actually do mostly philosophy of biology, uh, which, of course, was my former field of mm-hmm. research, and uh, which is all, makes it easier for me because the, I'm very familiar with the literature. Um, mm-hmm. But then there are other philosophers of science, like there is a colleague of mine at City College who does philosophy of physics um, and uh, so she even though she's a philosopher of science as well she is she, she does a very different kind of work um, mm. working in very different areas of, of science and then of course there is stoicism which is kind of strange because I don't have a background in, in ancient philosophy I'm certainly not an ancient philosophy scholar mm. but ever since I got into stoicism I started reading stuff also at a um, on stoicism also at uh, at the academic level and and then at some point people started asking me to write papers and book chapters and stuff like that about stoicism so this has kind of become a secondary area of research 
And for the listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with Stoicism, do you want to explain what that is? Yeah, so Stoicism is an ancient Greek-Roman philosophy of life. Uh, I think of it often as uh, kind of analogous to Buddhism. Uh, their, their metaphysics is very different. The, the Stoic and Buddhist metaphysics is very different, meaning that they think uh, they have very different uh, uh, opinions about how the world works. But their ethics is very similar, meaning, meaning uh, how we should live our life on a day-to-day basis. Um, and so basically, Stoicism started, started about 23 centuries ago in Athens, um, and it's a philosophy that teaches uh, endurance, uh, that teaches uh, virtue, by which we mean uh, that we should engage in pro-social behavior, being, being helpful to the, to, to the human society at large as much as we can. Uh, it essentially teaches you to become the best, meaning the most moral, the most ethical human being that you can, you can be. Mm-hmm. And, and you've done quite a few books on, on the subject of stylicism, haven't you? Yeah, as soon as I get interested in something, I start writing books about it, um, and <laughs> which you know it's just just the way I operate. Um, yes, I wrote three. The, fir- the third one is coming out, uh, in fact, in a few days. First one was How to Be a Stoic, uh, which came out in 2016, and it's a it's a general introduction to Stoicism for the for the general public. Um, it has, you know, it goes into the theory, the practice a little bit, and um, and then uh, it takes a number of specific. Uh, Topics or subject matters like friendship, for instance, uh, or disease, you know, and how to cope with those or how to handle those uh, from mm-hmm. a stoic perspective. The second one I co-wrote with my friend uh, Gregory Lopez, and um, it's called A Handbook for New Stoics, and it's entirely devoted to practice. It's basically a book of exercises. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, if you're really interested in practice in stoicism, uh, that's the, the, it's a unique book, actually. I don't think there's anything else like that uh, on the market. It's, um, mm-hmm. It really gets you from the beginning and, and moves you through uh, regular exercises so that you, know, just, you can become a proficient uh, practitioner of stoicism. The one that is coming out now, it's called A Field Guide to a Happy Life. And essentially, it's, it's a short book. Um, it's 53 short sections, and it's very practical. It, it, and the, the major goal is to uh, update stoicism to the 21st century because you know stoicism is, as I said, 23 centuries old. Mm-hmm. And uh, just like nobody today is a Christian, let's say, in the way in which Christians were 2,000 years ago, nobody is a Buddhist in the way in which Buddhists were two and a half millennia ago, uh, you know, mm-hmm. things evolve and, and, and philosophies and religions get updated. Uh, the, the goal of this new book is essentially to bring up Stoicism to the 21st century, to uh, present it not only in modern language, but also taking account of modern trends in culture, society, uh, and even modern advances in science. I mean, the, the, the Stoics were very at, at the vanguard of the of science of their time. But again, this was two millennia ago. So you know, science has made a little bit of progress in the meantime. Mm. And a lot of people really misunderstand what Stoicism is all about, don't they? They do. And, and you know, it's like, uh, like everything else, there, there are, there are um, misconceptions and, and stereotypes. And stereotypes do have... A, a little bit of a grain of, of truth in them, but, but then they distort the main things. So, so typically, people think of Stoics as uh, individuals that go around with a stiff upper lip and, and trying to suppress emotions, right? Kind of a Mr. Spock from Star Trek sort of thing. And that's not, not at all what it is about, but there is a little bit of truth in there. So uh, about the stiff upper lip, Stoicism does teach endurance, right? Mm. Um, because 
our conception of, the, of life is that certain things in life are up to us, and if, 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 you, if you can act, if you can change things, you should. Um, mm. It is, in fact, your duty to, cho- to change things for the best, for the better. Mm. But if you cannot, if you can't change, then, then you only have two choices. Either you endure them or you go, throw a tantrum. And throwing a tantrum is something that children do, and it's not very useful, um, and therefore you shouldn't do it. <laughs> so the only alternative you have, if you cannot change something, is just to endure it. Um, mm. But that doesn't mean, uh, you know, the stiff upper lip kind of thing, because Stoics actually are very much into uh, enjoying life um, uh, as it comes. In fact, very much focused on the living in the moment, because we think that uh, that what what is happening here and now is the only thing that actually matters. In terms of suppressing emotions, there too, there is a little bit of a grain of truth, but, but then there is a big distortion. What Stoics try to do is to shift the emotional spectrum of, you know, the normal emotional spectrum of a human being away from what we consider unhealthy emotions like anger, hatred, uh, and fear, and toward actively cultivating what we consider healthy emotions, such as love, joy, a sense of justice, uh, and so on. So, so it's not about suppressing emotions, but it's, it's about cultivating, mindfully cultivating the right emotions and mindfully trying to get away from, from the unhealthy ones. Mm. And, and people also have the wrong uh, perception on stoicism is that Stoics just sort of take everything and um, don't really maybe participate in life so much, which is far from the truth. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite of the truth, in fact. Yeah. Um, because uh, stoi- Stoicism, uh, one, of, one of the major things about Stoicism is social and political involvement. Uh, the, the ancient Stoics uh, started out being politically involved. In fact, several of them, especially during the Roman Empire, opposed the tyranny of several uh, of a number of emperors, including Nero, Vespasian, and Domitian. And as a result, they got killed or sent into exile. Mm. Uh, the new book that I just mentioned, uh, a Field Guide for a Happy Life, is inspired by a second century Stoic uh, whose name is Epictetus. And Epictetus was a um, very prominent teacher of Stoicism in ancient Rome, but he was also outspoken about uh, tyranny. And so the emperor Domitian sent him into exile, thinking that he would finally get rid of him. And uh, instead, Epictetus went to Nicopolis, which is on the northwestern coast of Greece, and reestablished his school there. And the school became incredibly successful, arguably the most uh, important school of philosophy of the second century. And a lot of Roman uh, patricians actually sent their kids to study with Epictetus, and uh, a later emperor, Adrian, actually became a friend and started visiting frequently uh, the school. So, so yes, yeah, Stoics, Stoics are very much into social and political action. Um, except the only the only difference is that we try to do things um, that by keeping in mind that our efforts are up to us. Our decisions of, of how to act are up to us, but our, the outcomes are not. So, you know, you have to accept from the get-go that sometimes you will prevail and sometimes you won't. And you mm. have to be fine with that from the beginning. Mm. Are you aware of any political leaders in, in, in any country that have sort of stoic leanings? Uh, the best example probably Nelson Mandela. Uh, the former uh, South African uh, president. Um, he wasn't really a stoic per se, but he was definitely influenced. We know that he was influenced by Marcos Aurelius' meditations. Mandela, as you know, spent an, an, a large number, of, you know, a lot of years in prison during the apartheid uh, government. And he was, ups- <clears throat> he was very, understandably, very angry uh, and full 
full of hatred um, mm. about th that situation. But he wasn't getting. But he realized that he wasn't getting anywhere with the anger and the hatred. Mm. And uh, at some point, a fellow prisoner smuggled in a copy of Marcus Aurelius' Meditation, mm. uh, Meditations, which is a lot. A lot of it is about controlling your anger and turning into a more pro-social attitude. You know, turning mm. your anger into something positive. Mm. And that's exactly what Mandela uh, tried to do, and it worked. Uh, he started actually befriending the, the guards and even the guy that was torturing him, um, and and trying to treat them as human beings who are misguided, who are doing the wrong thing, but, um, but not as, you know, evil or anything like that. And mm -hmm. it worked. Um, uh, and, of course, he, he used the same approach then after the collapse of the apartheid government to establish his own government, uh, you know, based on reconciliation, based on reaching out uh, rather than vengeance and, and, uh, and anger. Mm -hmm. And so, so as you, you've mentioned a couple of times in, you know, with the title of your new book as well, Stoicism is really about helping people to have a, a happier, a better life in, in many respects. And I think, I, I don't know, a lot of people just seem to get really intimidated by the whole subject of philosophy and, and, and well, and most people have no idea what really Stoicism or any sort of school of, of philosophy is about. So how yeah. would... Oh, so yeah, go sorry, go on. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so, I mean, I've, I've read your, your previous two books. I, I recently got hold of um, a book of, well, you're one of the contributors, How to Live a Good Life. Yes. And, and with your, your new book that, that's coming out as well, which they're all really about giving some great suggestions. It, this is my take on it anyway. Some great suggestions on how life can just be better by taking on board some of the you know, suggestions made by using examples from you know, people from 1,000, 2,000 years ago, whatever. Yeah, that's um, right. It's a shame that it, they're not more widely um, known about because it could help so many people, it seems to me. Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's one the major reason why I keep writing stuff and, and having you know, conversations like the one we're having is because mm -hmm. I am absolutely convinced that it can help people. And sure enough, one of the really uh, rewarding things about writing uh, about stoicism and talking about stoicism is that I get testimonials all the time from people saying, you know, this changed my life. This is, you know, I'm, 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 I'm handling my problems much better and so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's very nice to be able to actually help other people. Mm. Now, you were saying, you know, most people are not aware of these philosophies. That's true. On the other hand, uh, I also argue that everybody has a philosophy of life, whether they realize mm. it or not. Yeah. And, and so if you do, then it's better to think about it <laughs> and, see, mm. and try to figure out if, it, if it's the right one for you or, uh, or if it can be improved. I mean, for one mm. thing, I think of every religion as a type of philosophy of life. Yeah. Because I define a philosophy of life in a broad sense as having three components, a metaphysics, an ethics, and a practice. So a metaphysics is a, is a picture of how the world works. All right, so if you're a Christian, of course, the world is the creation of a creator God who is, uh, you know, benevolent and omnipotent, etc., etc. Uh, if you're a Stoic, uh, the, the world is a, is a place where cause and effect uh, uh, is, uh, determines everything and, and the laws of nature are, are just uh, what um, you have to deal with in life. The mm -hmm. ethics is about how to live your life, particularly with respect to other people. So if you're a Christian, you know, you're going to follow the Ten Commandments, you're going to uh, be inspired by Jesus' teachings, and, and so on. If you're a Stoic, you use what we call the four cardinal virtues, 
uh, as uh, a moral compass. You ask yourself, you know, if, if what you're doing is virtuous or uh, you use um, uh, several approaches that come out of Epictetus or Seneca or, or Marcus Aurelius. And then in terms of practice, you know, if you're a Christian, you go to church, right? you listen to your preacher or your priest, uh, you read uh, the Bible or the Gospels, uh, you pray, you know, you do those kind of things. And if you're a Stoic, you do, you engage in a number of practices, including meditation, you know, writing your, your, in your journal so that you can reflect on your experiences and learn from them. Uh, you engage in uh, mild exercises of self-deprivation, such as fasting and things like that. So they're really very similar uh, as, mm-hmm. as a structure. The content is different, but, but the structure is very, very similar. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that, uh, that, Everybody has a philosophy of life, and it, it would it be good, and it would be, I think, instructive for people to occasionally at least uh, pause and think about, okay, so what do I want from life, and, and how, am I, how am I doing here? You know, before you get to the end of life, and then you look back, and, and you realize that you actually mislived it, that, that you actually missed your chance of having a good, a good life. We don't, you, you don't want to go there at that point in that kind of situation. And, and you spoke about um, Christianity just then, and my understanding is that when the Stoicism helped form some of the sort of major parts of Christianity when they were first put in the, uh, I don't know if it was the early version of the Bible or, or what, but yeah, uh, the, the early versions of the of Christian write, writings uh, were definitely influenced by uh, the Stoics. Uh, Paul of Tarsus, you know, known as Sample actually knew Seneca's brother, and he addresses the Stoics directly in one of his letters um, that, that, are, that survive. Um, uh, other major early uh, church fathers, including uh, Augustine of Hippo, you know, San Augustine, were aware uh, of the Stoics and admiring of the Stoics. And the thing actually kept going throughout the Middle Ages and into modern times. Um, for instance, uh, Epictetus wrote, the Stoic Epictetus uh, well, he didn't write anything, but one of his of his students put together a book called uh, uh, the Enchiridion, which is the, mm. a manual for for a good life. And the Enchiridion was used throughout the Middle Ages by Christian monks as a book of spiritual exercises. So it was very influential uh, mm. through Christianity. Uh, several of the early modern philosophers, uh, including several Christian philosophers, were uh, influenced by Stoicism. Uh, back to the Middle Ages, uh, Thomas Aquinas, you know, St. Thomas, uh, when he articulated the seven uh, Christian virtues, he took on the four Stoic virtues and incorporated them into Christianity. The, Stoic, the, the four Stoic virtues are practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance, to which Thomas Aquinas added uh, faith, hope, and, and charity, which are the more, more typical Christian virtues. And the whole thing, you know, it really keeps going into the 20th century and, and beyond. So, like, probably some of your listeners might be familiar with the Serenity Prayer, which was written by an American theologian at the beginning of the 20th century. And it basically asks God uh, the uh, wisdom to tell the difference between what you can change and what you cannot change, the courage to change what you can, and the serenity to, to accept what you cannot. Mm-hmm. Well, that that notion is present in a number of other cultures. It's found in uh, medieval um Jewish thought, uh, and also in uh, 8th century Buddhism. But the, the earliest version that we know of actually goes back to the, to the Stoics. And in Stoicism, this is called the dichotomy of control, as Epictetus 
puts it, some things are up to us and other things are not up to us. And mm -hmm. in life, what you should do is to focus on the things that are up to you and then develop an attitude of equanimity and acceptance toward the things you don't control. Mm -hmm. You talked of the, the four stoic virtues just then, you know, courage, applied wisdom, justice, temperance. What, how would a lot of, well, I'm guessing that some people listening to this may be not so familiar with what, like, especially words like temperance, what that really means. And would you explain the four, the four sure. virtues? Sure, and, and I'll give you also a practical example of how to, to uh, actually implement them in your day-to-day in your -day life. So mm -hmm. uh, practical wisdom is the knowledge of what is good, really good for you and, or not good for you. And for the Stoics, uh, that knowledge boils down to anything that improves your character, that makes you a better person, is good, and anything that undermines your character and makes you a worse person, it's bad. That's pretty much mm. the end of the story. Mm. Um, courage is moral courage, not just uh, you know, the, the courage of uh, physical danger in, in, in front of digital, uh, physical danger, but um, particularly moral courage. Justice means treating other people fairly, um, with equanimity and, and like you would like to be treated uh, mm -hmm. in return. And then temperance is doing things, it's self, essentially self-control, it, it doing things in the right measure, neither too much nor too little. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, suppose that, that I am in a situation, you know, day-to-day -day situation, I'm, I go to work and uh, uh, my boss is, is harassing a co-worker. The question mm -hmm. I'm facing now is, well, should I intervene or not? And so as a Stoic, I look at the four virtues, which I'm using as a, uh, sort of a moral compass, essentially, or guidance to action. And I, I say, okay, well, according to practical wisdom, I should intervene because intervening in, a, in that sort of situation makes me a better person. Not intervening makes me a worse, a worse person. So the, answer, the first answer is yes. In terms of courage, well, yeah, it does require courage because this is my boss, so I could face retaliation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it takes courage, so the answer is yes. In terms of justice, well, is it fair toward my co-worker? You know, would I like, if I were in this situation, would I like somebody to step in and help me out? Of course I would. So, mm -hmm. again, the answer is yes. And then in terms of temperance, like, well, so now, now that I decided that I should intervene, how should I intervene? Mm -hmm. Well, I could simply mother some, some words below my, you know, my breath so that the, my boss doesn't actually hear me. Well, that's not enough. That's mm. underdoing it, right? Mm. At, the, uh, at the opposite extreme, I could jump up and, and punch my boss on, on the nose. Well, that's too much of a mm. reaction. The, the situation doesn't require physical violence. So temperance tells me that I should do something in the middle. So I should speak uh, you know, forcefully, clearly, but also, uh, you know, calmly and, and try to address the situation. So that's, that's the way it essentially works. You're supposed to do this kind of quick analysis uh, on a, of a situation, pretty much everything you do, uh, from the big things in life to the, to the small ones. And initially, you know, it's like driving a car. Initially, you have to pay a lot of attention to it. You know, if you, if you remember learning how to drive a car, especially a shift stick, um, as I did in Europe, you know, you, there's a lot of things you have to pay attention to, right? And then mm. the brake, and then the, 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 the gears, and the, and the accelerator, and the steering wheel, and uh, you have to look at the traffic light, and the car is near you, etc. And initially, it's a little bit stressful, because you have to consciously pay attention to a lot of things. But then, the more you do it, the more it kind of becomes second nature. 
Mm. and becomes automatic. You don't have to think about most of this stuff, right? If somebody all of a sudden crosses the street in front of you, your, your foot automatically goes to the, to the brake. It doesn't, you don't need to think about it. Mm. Uh, in fact, it would be inefficient to think about it because <laughs> by the time you thought about it, you probably already killed the person. Mm. The same goes with the four virtues. Right. So initially, it takes practice and mindfulness to, you know, to pay attention and say, okay, well, so wait a minute, what should I do here? But the more you do it, the more you uh, reflect on things and why you do things and how you should do things, the more it kind of becomes second nature and, and at some point becomes automatic. And in fact, um, Epictetus explicitly says in the, um, in the Enchiridion that that's the goal, that you should in fact work toward these judgments about things becoming automatic so that you can do them, as he, say, as he says, you, can, you should be able to do them even if you're drunk. Mm. Right? Um, it, even if you're drunk, you should be, still be able to, do what, to know what the right thing to do is and do it. Mm. In, in the time that you've been sort of teaching stoicism and writing books on it and so on, can you think of any examples where you've really helped, I don't, know, I don't know if transform is the right word, but someone who maybe wasn't aware of any of these sorts of things and by taking them on board, they have had a much better life or, or anything like that? Yeah, uh, several. And uh, one of my favorite examples is um, uh, a former client of mine. I do, uh, from time to time, I do something called philosophical uh, counseling, which essentially applies philosophy, in my case, particularly stoicism, but not only. To people's like you know life day, daily daily life problems. Now we're not talking about pathologies. We're not talking about people who are depressed or bipolar mm. or anything like that. You, you you have to go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist for that. Mm. But you know the rest of us have you know in fact even those people even after they go to the psychologist or the psychiatrist they still have problems like you know friends and um, love and career and and so on and so forth right. And so uh, there was this, this woman a few years ago that came to me with you know, serious problems. She was in a, uh, going through a, a, crisis, a life crisis in terms of she was uh, unhappy about her relationship status, about her job, about her prospects in life in general. And, uh, and so she wanted to try uh, philosophical counseling. And uh, I don't actually impose, of course, stoicism to my clients. I, I explore different possibilities depending on what the client's leaning is and what the specific situation is. But I had impression by talking to her very early on that she would be responsive to sort of a stoic approach to things. And so I introduced her to, uh, little by little, uh, to, to stoic uh, concepts. And she responded immediately very, very positively. And she, she wanted to know more. And we engaged in... Uh, uh, for a little bit in what it's called bibliotherapy. Bibliotherapy is simply a situation where I assign you readings, uh, either books or essays. Uh, you do, you go home, do it, and then you come back in the next session and we talk about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, within a few sessions, like, you know, I forgot exactly, but like four or five sessions, she herself uh, said, you know, this is really changing the way I look at, at things and it's it's making my priorities much more clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, within a year, she had quit her job, moved to a different country, and essentially restarted entirely her life 
Um, mm. And I still keep in touch with her, and she is much happier uh, uh, that, than she was uh, at the time. Now, of course, I don't want to give the impression to your listeners that, you know, that, that stoicism is a silver bullet that, or a panacea. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. This is philosophy. It's not quantum mechanics. You know, it's, not, it's not physics. Um, it, it depends. It depends in part on the, on the individual. It depends on the situation. And also, of course, it depends on your efforts. You know, some people mm. take it seriously and other people don't. Mm. Um, but, yes, I have a number of examples like that where, where things really did work out very well for people and, um, um, and they changed their lives. Mm. Why do you think there is the, uh, the, well, it seemed for so long, up until the early, what, first, second century, Stoicism was really popular and then Christianity took over. Well, why do you think there's been a resurgence recently? Um, I think we live in, in uh, a situation very similar for certain respects to, uh, to the situation that led to the flourishing of, of uh, uh, Stoicism and of a number of other philosoph- Hellenistic philosophies such as Epicureanism, Aristotelianism, and Skepticism, and so on. So I have to think about it this way. Hellenism, uh, the Hellenistic period, was a period of major turmoil in the Mediterranean area. Uh, we're talking about the period between the death of Alexander the Great and therefore the collapse, the sudden collapse of the Macedonian Empire, and therefore the disorder and chaos and war that ensued. And the uh, Battle of Actium of 31 BCE, where Octavian uh, defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, therefore, thereby beginning the Roman Empire, right? Oct- Octavian became, became the Emperor Augustus, the first Roman Emperor. So it's a it was a period of major turmoil that lasted like more than a century, century and a half, uh, where people's lives seemed to be completely out of control. Things were spinning out, and and you had no no way to tell where they were going and how. What would you have to do in order to retain some degree of sanity? Mm. That is a period where philosophies, personal philosophies of life, including Stoicism, uh, flourished. A similar situation. Uh, took place just a couple of hundred years earlier in India and gave origin to Buddhism. And mm. a similar situation was happening about the same time uh, in, uh, in uh, China and gave origin to Confucianism. So this has happened several times mm. uh, throughout you know, history and, and across cultures. Now, if you think about it, Stoicism, as well as, in fact, Buddhism and other philosophies of life, have become uh, more popular over the last few decades. And why might that be? Well, there's a number of reasons, one of which certainly is that between the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, we are living a hell of a t- in a hell of a time, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. We, you know, during the 20th century, we went through two, not one, two world wars. Um, we still live, you know, people tend to forget it because it's not in the news very much, but we still live under the constant threat of nuclear Armageddon because we have developed enough nuclear weapons to destroy the planet several times over. Uh, we live in, uh, uh, under the threat of a cl- uh, global climate collapse if we don't do something about it. Um, and we've seen a lot, lot of, you know, political upheaval in the late 20th century, 21st century. Uh, we have seen, uh, you know, now we live in the middle of a pandemic. It's like, yeah, there is the reasons why people think that feel that, that things are out of control and that they can't, you know, they don't know where, what, where to do, what to do and where to turn. And that is one major reason. I don't think it's the only one, um, but it's one major reason for the resurgence of stoicism. Another one is actually the uh, phenomenon of social media. It is now very easy 
to join uh, you know, online groups devoted to the discussion and study of Stoicism, support groups. Uh, there is an organization called the Stoic Fellowship uh, that you can join, and they uh, will direct you to other Stoic practitioners in your town so that you can actually meet with people and establish what are called local stores. Um, so, so social media has made it much more easy for people to uh, find out about the philosophy, to, to practice it with the help of uh, uh, people who are a bit, a bit more advanced in the, in the practice and, and so on. Hmm. I mean, in the, the books that you've um, published uh, previously, do you, are you aware of any stories of people discovering them by accident who had no knowledge of stoicism and, and found them really helpful? Yeah, uh, yeah, there are several. Uh, one of the most uh, um, well-known, I suppose, stories is that of uh, James uh, Stockdale. Uh, you, you may remember Stockdale was a one-time vice presidential candidate in the United States with Ross Perot. Mm. Uh, but for, for a large part of his career, he was in the Navy, um, and he was involved in the, you know, he was fighting in, in Vietnam. And, um, and at one point, in fact, he was shut down. His, his plane was shut down, and, uh, and he spent like seven years, I think, in um, what used to be euphemistically called the Hanoi Hilton, which was a mm. high-security prison in Vietnam. He was tortured. He was put in isolation and so on and so forth. And he credits Stoicism and particularly Epictetus for surviving that kind of ordeal. And the way he discovered it was completely by chance. Uh, before in, in, uh, enlisting uh, and, uh, and moving to, to Vietnam, he went to Stanford uh, University to do a master's in, I think, political science or international affairs, one, something like that. And one of the courses he had to take was philosophy. Hmm. And it was a kind of a general philosophy course. It, wasn't, it was not a course about stories. It was a general philosophy course. But, the, but at the end of the semester, the professor uh, that was teaching the course uh, and James Stockdale had a number of conversations, uh, and because James was interesting, was intrigued by a number of you know, philosophical questions. And uh, the professor said, here, I know you're leaving. Um, I'm going to give you this little book, and that was the Enchiridion, Epictetus' book. Uh, I think that you'll you find it useful, and, uh, and you know, it, might, it might actually change your, li your life. And it did, because Stockdale read several times, many, many, many times over, uh, and uh, the Enchiridion, and uh, it really incorporated this notion of the dichotomy of control that I was talking about earlier, that some things are up to you and other things are not up to you. And uh, he, he wrote a memoir where he says that when, he was, uh, when his plane was hit, um, and he, he parachuted himself out, and he realized that um, you know, a few minutes later he was going to be captured, and that there was probably going to be years before he was going to be released. And, um, and he thought to himself, you know what? You're about to leave the world as you know it and enter the world of Epictetus, a world in, in which, in other words, there is very little that is going to be under your control because Epictetus was a slave uh, initially. Uh, eventually, was, he was freed and, and he became a teacher, but initially he was a slave, so he, he, he had very, very little under his control. Right? He was entirely dependent on, on the whims of his, of his master. So uh, that's one example among many of people sort of stumbling into Stoicism, not because they were looking for a philosophy of life or not because they were somehow particularly interested in Stoicism, and then, and then suddenly getting into it and, um, and, and that decision making a huge difference in their life. 
in your your new book, I forgot the title. Was it "How to Live a, a Happy Life"? Uh, it's it's a, a field guide to a happy life, and field the life. reason the, it's called a field guide is because life happen in happens in the field in practice, and and so it's right. uh, you know it's a reference to that that notion. So, for anyone who's listening and is maybe intrigued by what you've been speaking about so far. Could you give uh, a sort of synopsis of it and how it might help someone who has no knowledge of, of any of this? Well, so let me give you uh, a couple of examples. Maybe it's, it's, it's the best way to go about it. Um, so I have the book in front of me and um, the book is, is made as a set. There's a, a short introduction about Stoicism in general, ju- just for people who don't know much about it and about Epictetus because as I said, that he's the major, major inspiration about the book. But, but the bulk of the book is a uh, series of short sections. As I said, there's 53. And the reason there is 53 is because there, that's the number that Epictetus used in his original version. Uh, the, the field guide is an update to the 20th, 21st century of Epictetus uh, and Caridian. So mm-hmm. I maintained the same exact structure and I covered the same exact topics, just that my version is updated to the 21st century in terms of both philosophy and um, um, and, and science, in fact, scientific advancements. So you can open, the book does not, it really shouldn't be read necessarily cover to cover. You can just open, open it at random and find a section uh, that you find intriguing. And some of these sections are you know, like two or three paragraphs or maybe a couple of pages long. Some of them are actually one, only one paragraph. Like, for instance, section 28. I can read it to you in, your, in, in its entirety. It says, suppose someone takes your body and gives it to someone else to do as they please. Surely you will be upset, No. So why is it that you don't get upset when other people manipulate your mind so that they can do with it whatever they please? So this is, think about it for a moment. We live in an environment, in a situation where there's fake news and politicians trying to manipulate your, your life and, and uh, you know, international corporations trying to manipulate your life. And we just don't seem to mind. We don't seem to object to this at all. But of course, if somebody were to grab our, our body and cut off a part of it or manipulate part of it, then we'd be absolutely outraged. And so the point here is like, why don't you stop and think about why it is that you're, that you're not paying attention to certain things? Why it is that you're so disconnected, so numb, we become so numb um, uh, from, uh, about the general situation that, you know, a lot of people say, I, I keep running into people who say, oh, I'm not into politics. It's like, what do you mean you're not into politics? Hmm. I said, well, it doesn't affect me. Of course it affects you. <laughs> There's no way in, on earth that, that politics is not going to affect you. You can just let it affect you without knowing it or, or, taking, or actually taking part in making decisions and you know, things like that. Hmm. Um, uh, section 27, the previous section says, nothing in the world is evil or for that matter good. The world just is. It is up to us to decide what to do with whatever comes our way. This is a fundamental Stoic precept um, that has to do with the notion that value judgments are not out there in the world. Events Mm -hmm. and things and people don't come with a label attached to them that says good or bad. Mm -hmm. We make judgments. Judgments are are things that we arrive at on the basis of whatever information uh, we gather about the world. So Sometimes we cannot change the world as it is because it's outside of our power, but we can certainly choose to think of the same exact situation in a very different way. Uh, For instance, uh, let's say somebody loses his job, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which unfortunately during this pandemic is happening at an incredible rate and, you know, very worrisome rate. But nevertheless, Mm -hmm. losing one's job, you know, most people would immediately think, oh, this is a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Right, but... 
catastrophe is a label that you put on a situation. The objective situation is you don't have a job anymore. Mm. That's a fact, right? You can't argue with that, with that one. That, that's a fact. Yeah. Uh, however, whether that fact is a catastrophe or an opportunity, whether it is you know, a, a horrible situation or, a, or a, just a setback and a way perhaps for you to move in a different direction, that actually depends on your own judgment. You can think of it differently. It's up to you to think of it in a certain way. And psychological research shows that it's very clear if people catastrophize, that's actually a term in psychology, uh, if people catastrophize things, they, don't, they can't move forward. They, they get stuck into this loop of, oh my gosh, this is a catastrophe, I can't do anything about it, oh, this is awful, etc. And you get stuck there and it, things only get worse. On the other hand, if people choose to say, all right, that's a setback, but I'm going to think about this as a challenge, mm. right? This is going to be a test of my ability to be resilient. It's going to be a test of my ability to overcome obstacles and things like that. Um, then they're actually doing much better, mm. right? Now, again, this is not, this is not to invoke magic. It's, I'm not suggesting that all of a sudden you, you think differently about things and, and everything is going to be fine. You're not going to get your, your job back just because you think positively about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the evidence is pretty clear that the Stoics are, were right, that if you, if you change your judgment about things, that actually is going to change the way you act about, about things, and it is going to make a difference in, uh, in the way you, over, you overcome or on, in, actually whether you overcome your problems or your setbacks. Mm. The, the title of this podcast, Happiness Versus Flourishing, and, and obviously, well, you would know this more than probably anyone listening, you know, referring to eudaimonia. Right. And you, I imagine that you'll be able to give me a better explanation than anyone I'm likely to interview on this as to what eudaimonia really is. <laughs> I can try. Uh, so eudaimonia... Um, is often, unfortunately, translated as happiness. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's, that's a problem because, for one thing, happiness is a little bit of a fuzzy concept. You know? mm-hmm. uh, happiness often simply refers to an uh, emotional state of mind. Right? Oh, I'm happy to see you. Right? Mm-hmm. Or, or I'm happy that I'm having a gelato tonight for dessert or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, if anything, we're talking about long-term, what sometimes psychologists refer to as long-term happiness, which has, actually has to do more with meaning uh, in life than, than happiness per se. Now, a better translation of eudaimonia is um, flourishing. Right? So it's, it's a life of flourishing, a life that allows you to uh, live in, in what is a satisfying, you know, good way for a human being. Mm. However, even that one I find a little bit problematic because it kind of favors certain particular ways of looking at, at, um, at eudaimonia. I mean, the more general um, conception of eudaimonia is the life worth living. Mm-hmm. And there may be very different kinds of life that are worth living. Mm-hmm. Right? So, for instance, let me give you an example. Um, Nelson Mandela's life that I mentioned earlier was definitely not a flourishing, a life of flourishing. I mean, the guy spent 27 years in prison. You, you don't think that that's flourishing, right? Uh, he was not able to pursue his own projects. He was not able to have his own family and so on and so forth until much later in life, right? So if you understand eudaimonia as flourishing, you say, well, then too bad for Mandela. He definitely did not have a eudaimonic life. However, what he was doing had meaning, 
Mm. Um, it was driven by a sense of injustice. It was driven by a sense of trying to help his people. And in fact, in the end, he actually prevailed. He actually succeeded. So from that perspective, Mandela's life was most definitely worth living, mm. right? even though you know, a third of it was spent in prison. Mm. So uh, that's what I think is a good translation of eudaimonia. The Stoics would say, look, of course, if you can, you should try to flourish. Mm. Uh, if, you, if you can, you should try to uh, pursue your projects, have good relationships, you know, even enjoy pleasure uh, whenever is, you know, it's possible. Th those things are great. But what if you can't? What if you are in a situation where all those things are precluded to you because you're poor or because you're in a war zone or because you are you know, in, in prison for the wrong reason and so on and so forth? Then they would say, your life may still be worth living if you try to live it in the best way that is allowed by the circumstances. And the best way allowed by the circumstances always means uh, in a way that is resilient and helpful to others. You know, one of the um, great 20th century psychologists was Viktor Frankl, mm. uh, who wrote a, a book on, on, on meaning, uh, you know, life meaning for, for, for human beings, for, for men. And Frankl spent, uh, you know, World War II, much of World War II in, an, in a concentration camp, which he barely survived. Right? And uh, he thought that that experience, even that experience was worthwhile. Not a good one. Not you know, he wasn't having any fun there, obviously, and people were dying right and left around him. But it was a meaningful experience because he spent much of that time trying to help his fellow uh, prisoners, right? Yeah. And and that is what allowed him actually to survive in mm. the first place. He had hope because hope was not the result of this sort of vague notion that, oh, things are going to get better, um, because he didn't know that things were going to get better. You know, you're in the, in the middle of World War II. You don't know whether the Nazis are going to win or not. Um, but you do have a sense of hope because you're actually doing the only thing that you can possibly do that is meaningful under those conditions. You're trying to alleviate other people's sufferings. Mm. And it worked for him. And that's the, the fundamental message of Stoicism. By all means, if you, if you can, if you're in a position to live a flourishing life, you should. But if you're not, that doesn't mean your life is not worth living. Yeah. And, and you, you referred to Viktor Frankl just then. Is there any evidence that he read any Stoic literature? You know, I looked into it because several people say so, and it doesn't look like it. Um, he was influenced by actually the existentialists uh, more, more than the Stoics. However, uh, that said, there are other very similar traditions in modern uh, psychotherapy, uh, particularly uh, rational emotive behavior therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, whose founders... Uh, Albert Ellis and, and uh, Beck were actually directly influenced by the Stoics. That, that we know for sure because they write about, the, about it. These are some of the most uh, successful evidence-based therapies these days. And uh, they did start out precisely because these people read you know, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Epictetus and said, whoa, hold on, hold on a second. There's, there's quite a bit going on here that can be actually updated you know, with, you know, uh, confirmed by scientific research, enlarged, updated, and, uh, and actually put into practice so that people can live better lives. Where, where do you see your future over the next sort of five, ten years, Massimo? I don't. I try not to think about the future. <laughs> uh, what, I, what I do is I try to really live in the here and now. Um, I, right now, I am enthusiastic about doing certain things. I'm, I love teaching. I'm running a new book um, uh, that will come out hopefully sometime next year. Is that about, the Great Crisis Fund? 
Uh, no, I, the great courses, are, are, yeah, that's, thank you for mentioning that. The great courses, uh, I just finished uh, writing uh, 24 lectures for the great courses company, and we're going to record them uh, sometime in November. That's going to come out next year. The, the book that I'm referring to is actually going to be finished, hopefully, by next summer. Uh, and it's, um, it's about the very interesting, in my mind, very fascinating relationship between Socrates and one of his friends and, and uh, students, Alcibiades. Alcibiades was an incredibly charming and, and charismatic uh, Athenian general who was arguably half responsible for the disaster of the Peloponnesian War. And, uh, and so the book is about the relationship between philosophy and politics, basically, uh, seen through the lenses, to the lens of, uh, of this particular very you know, fascinating relationship. So in terms of the future, you know, I, I would like to keep doing what I'm doing because, because I am excited about it and, um, and I find it meaningful. But I've learned, uh, you know, I've, I've went through enough changes in my life that I know uh, that I should should never say that, oh, this is gonna, what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. We'll see. You know, mm-hmm. next year we might have this conversation and the situation will look very different and, uh, and I might be doing something completely different. Uh, that is one of the things that Stoicism teaches you. Uh, as Marcus Aurelius uh, puts it in an interesting way, he says that whenever there is an obstacle in front of you, the best thing to, the best way to think about it is not as an obstacle, not, not insisting you know, in, in banging your, your head on the wall, but in finding a way, another path, finding a, a way around the obstacle, as, as sometimes uh, the concept is presented, you know, the obstacle becomes the way. So mm-hmm. I have no idea what obstacles life will put in my way over the next year or five years or ten years, um, but I, uh, I hope that my stoic practice has prepared me for acting and, and reacting in the best way possible and you know we'll see whatever the path is going to be i think what you're really telling me is by the time we next bit you'll be doing a fourth phd <laughs> i hope that i'm done with that kind of stuff but you, you never know <laughs> um, if people want to find out more about you and your books and what you do where would they go uh, there is a place where everything about me is kind of archived and stored and linked and everything. And it's, it's, it's a site called MassimoPilucci.com. So it's my first name, last name, one word, uh, .com. Uh, people can also find me on Twitter at MPilucci, M-P-I-G-L-I-U-C-C-I. And you, you have a, a daily podcast as well, don't you? I do. It's called Stoic Meditations. Uh, it comes out every day during the week. Uh, it's a very short thing. It's about five minutes long. And the way it came out is because uh, as part of my practice, I do one of those meditations every day, which basically consists in opening a sort of a random uh, writing of, of the ancient Stoics, reading a couple of paragraphs, and then sort of reflecting for a few minutes about what that means and how it may apply to my life. And then at some point I realized that, you know, just in the way it is useful to me, it may be useful to other people. And so I turned that into a podcast. And now we're, we're, I think we're above 650 episodes and, and like almost 5 million downloads. Uh, so apparently I was right. <laughs> Some people do find it useful. It, it's excellent. I've listened to it many times. Yeah, it's very, it's very short. So it's, I think everyone could really fit it into their day. Thank you. And um, so just before we finish, Massimo, is there, apart from your own wonderful books, is there a book that you would recommend to, to listeners that they, they might really enjoy? Uh, well, there's a lot, of, of course. <laughs> there's a lot of them. I'm thinking about uh, things that I'm reading uh, right now. And um, 
I'm really enjoying a, a novel, an historical novel uh, called August, Augustus by John Williams. And uh, it's a really interesting, it's, it's about the first Roman emperor. And it's fascinating because it's written as an epistolary novel. So it's a series of letters that either Augustus himself or some of his friends or some of his enemies write uh, to each other. And it's fascinating because not only, if, not just if you're interested in, in Roman history, which of course I am, but just if you're interested in the human condition, because uh, it touches on uh, the, the connection, the, the relationship between personal uh, life and political life, uh, the relationship between power and friendship and love. So these are universal themes that, and, and Augustus as a uh, as a main character in the novel, just happens to be an excuse basically for, for John Williams to talk about about it. Um, but it's a fascinating book that I, I highly recommend. And, and before we finish, is there a quotation that you particularly like? Uh, sure. And this, this would have to be by Epictetus. It's, it's, it's one of the very first things that I read by Epictetus. And it goes something on the lines of, um, uh, well, if I have to die, I die now. But it doesn't look like now it's the time uh, for my death. Therefore, I need to think about lunch. And it's a, it's a it's a great example of Epictetus' sense of humor and practicality. It's like, sure, you know, thinking about death is important. You want to prepare about that, but it doesn't look like it's happening now, and there are more pressing things to do, like having lunch. So let's talk about those. Because wasn't that he was about to be sentenced or something when that happened? We don't know what the context is. That, uh, but yes, actually, no. You're right. You're right. Um, that that uh, Epictetus there is actually quoting somebody. And uh, it was uh, uh, it was a Roman senator, a Stoic Roman senator, who was in fact uh, waiting for condemnation, and, and uh, because he was opposing the emperor. And um, when his friends uh, came to with the verdict, he asked, uh, "So is it is it death or exile?" And uh, they said, "Well, it's exile." Oh, great! Uh, and do I do I get to keep my property outside of Rome or or not? And uh, his friends said, "Yeah, you do keep to." to keep your property and so the guy said okay then let's go out for lunch <laughs> that's that's clearly the thing to do at this point and he, he did have quite a good sense of humor didn't it absolutely it was it's a it has a sense of humor and to some some to some extent bordering on sarcasm but it's a kind of constructive sarcasm it's, it makes you realize things look at things in a way that you normally don't look at well, Massimo, I really appreciate your time and the, the wonderful you know, nuggets of wisdom that you shared over the last hour. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Next week is episode five on Happy Versus Flourishing. And my guest is Simon Jordan, who has he's done many things. He, he set up an organization a few years ago called Five Things Clear, which was to, to try to battle the um, situation with people just leaving rubbish all over the beaches and forests and streets and and he encouraged people to try to pick up five things a day and take a photograph of them and and an app was created and within a very short space of time millions of items were being picked up and photographs were coming in from all over the world not just I mean this was in the UK that this was started but it soon spread all over the world He's also, he's a branding expert, he he coaches people in in branding and marketing, he he swims in the sea every morning off the uh, the coast of England, he's he's quite a character, Simon, so that's next week's um, 
edition of Happy Versus Flourishing with Simon Jordan. Hope you've enjoyed this week's show. Maybe share it with someone who you think would get some real benefit from some of the tips that Massimo gave on on how to improve your life, how to have a more meaningful, happier life. And why not subscribe and leave a review for us as well? That really helps us get the show to, to more people. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week. Thank you.